Whenever it feels like God is far away, God is not the one who has moved away from you, it's us who have moved away from God. If we're in a place where we feel cold, it's not the sun that has grown further in its distance, it's us who have turned away from the sun. God has not changed in His character or His qualities. He's still loving and gracious and slow to anger. And yet, there are times in our lives where it feels like God is far away. That's what the psalmist is experiencing. Today on the Song Time broadcast, we'll continue our study in Psalm 83. As we look at this imprecatory prayer, we'll ask a question that is all too familiar to just about everyone as we struggle with this feeling that God is indifferent to our struggle. Stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to be talking with Mark Jones once again as we're exploring his book called Knowing Sin. As the many voices come together for that one message, I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Song Time Radio. This month's Doctrine series is on the subject of sin. How we understand sin actually says a lot about us. Do we define sin as what affects God and how God sees sin? Or do we define it in our own terms? Do we seek to sort of measure what is bothering to us and what's not such a bother? And do we then evaluate righteousness and unrighteousness on our man-centered focus? That happened to be the very problem that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to have the knowledge of God, of knowing good and evil, deciding good and evil, and that is what led us down this path to begin with. Well, this week we're talking about the subject of sin as we're joined once again by Mark Jones. He's the author of a book called Knowing Sin, Seeing a Neglected Doctrine Through the Eyes of the Puritans. And while I do believe, uh, Mark, this is a neglected doctrine, you've got to explain to us why uh, you chose that as a subtitle and why you're focusing on it as a neglected doctrine. I mean, we all understand what sin is, but what makes it neglected in our culture today? Well, truth be told, I think the publisher liked the uh, subtitle, <laughs> uh, but I agree with the publisher. I think it is neglected. It, to me, it's neglected when I hear sermons preached. It's not that Preachers won't use the word sin, especially in reform circles. Uh, I think you'll hear sin, and especially in terms of Christ dying for sin, but I think it's neglected in the specific um, manifestations of sin in, in pulpits and in our, our own lives. Like, what does pride really look like? What does envy look like? What are the sins of the mind look like? Uh, and so on. And, and so for me, it, the neglect is not just sin, but it's it's the specific specificity of sin and being a real sinner. So that's that's kind of what I have in mind. It's, it's an interesting topic, and I think that there are certainly people that go to the extreme of, of casting blame and disparaging, you know, other churches and other traditions that uh, we don't talk about sin nearly enough, but uh, the trope might actually be true in some cases where that the subject of sin is not really popular. People don't want to hear about it. We're going to get a lot more people to, to listen up to us if we tell them, you know, seven ways to, you know, better improve your marriage as opposed to saying, well, you got to deal with the sin in your life if you really want to draw closer to your spouse. Yeah. No, there's a, I think I, as a Canadian, we hear about these um, places in America where you can go get a full body MRI and it will reveal anything that could be wrong with you. And I gotta be honest, that terrifies me, that idea. Uh, you know, where you can go and all of a sudden the next minute is like, nothing is left uncovered. And I think, you know, what we think about how that could be terrifying for health 
reasons. Uh, it's also good because if there is something wrong, you need to find it, right? And if there is something wrong with us and our souls, diseased souls, we need to deal with it. And I, you know, it's kind of like painful, but necessary. Mm. I think uh, I've only been married for three years, and I'm learning that uh, my wife uh, wants to, you know, have conversation with me. She, I'm there as a husband to sanctify her by the word and do all of that great work, and yet she doesn't really quite like it when I'm pointing out some of the mistakes that she's doing <laughs> or some of the things that I'm not too fond of. Um, I, I've got a lot to learn in that realm, but uh, I think that uh, we have a tendency to kind of back off on that. I mean, how, how should we handle that subject, especially as pastors? You're a pastor, I'm a pastor. How should we handle this when we know that our congregation uh, we don't want to beat up our congregation every week, week after week, talking about sin. So, how do we handle that? That's a good. That's a good question because I think you know there's a there's a reaction that can be um, there's never really any um, strong language. Uh, and you know, Martin Lloyd Jones liked the use of "you" in the pulpit because you're God's messenger. But uh, I kind of think that you, we can talk about the "you" to the congregation, but sometimes we can throw in the "we." And we can identify a bit with them in terms of our own um, proclivities, our own sins, our weaknesses, which doesn't keep us too aloof and too distant from the struggle that the everyday person goes through because pastors are are very aware of their own sin or should be. So I think a pathos and an understanding with God's people where you're not just declaring from on high each week, you know, everyone's sins, but understanding the, the, the seriousness of how it's even affected your own life and, your, and, and how you want to improve. And I think there's a, a delicate balance there um, that we need to insist on. But it, it certainly, I think the, the tendency would be we don't drive home the heinousness of specific sins enough and um, and then it just becomes anemic preaching in my mind. We've been talking with Mark Jones about his book called Knowing Sin, Seeing a Neglected Doctrine Through the Eyes of the Puritans. You can find out more information about his book and, in fact, get a copy as a thank you for your support to the Songtime Ministry for a donation of any amount. When you write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we are continuing in the same vein as we're talking about sin. We're also discovering Psalm 83 as an imprecatory prayer. How to pray for judgment. How to pray for God to punish those who are wicked, the enemies of God. Now, this all has to be taken into perspective, especially when we consider our own feelings and the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, in this message, I share one of my own sermons because, quite honestly, I could not find any other sermons on this passage. I don't know why we avoid the imprecatory Psalms, but therein lies the problem. We'll look at the passage today as we discover a feeling that is all too familiar to many believers, myself included, feelings and times in our life where we, we get the sense that God is indifferent to our struggles. Here is my sermon on Psalm 83. The Psalms are not simply a way of giving us expressions to the emotions that we already feel. The Psalms are actually there to instruct our feelings, to tell us how we ought to feel to invite us into feeling the emotions that God feels so that our, our every part of who we are 
might be conformed into the image of Christ. And I don't think that there's a better way to do that than to look at the imprecatory psalms. Because these are psalms that we have a very hard time conforming to. This psalm in particular is one of the lightest, so you guys are getting off easy. This is one of the lightest of the imprecatory psalms. But it opens up with this strong statement, this strong saying from Asaph. It says, O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still. These three words, silence, peace, and still, are all kind of variations of a similar theme. Peace here is not the word shalom, which is the peace that God gives us, peace in life. It's more like a a being put out to pasture sort of peace. It's the retirement. It's the going to plow and get away from the house for a little while until your other half cools down a little bit. Uh, This is the idea of indifference, and the psalmist is arguing or at least suggesting that it seems that God is indifferent to their struggle. It seems that God is not listening to their prayers, that, that God is, is not moving in their midst. And the question is, why? Why in this time and in this place, when, when it seems that the world is collapsing in around them, does God seem so far away? This is a God who had been faithful to them time after time after time. This is uncharacteristic of God to remain silent in the time of trouble. God is the one who calls people. He is the one who leads people. He's the one who shepherds them. So why is it now, in their time of need, that God seems so distant? Well, the answer is pretty clear in the context of this psalm. That over years and generations of following God, eventually people had, had started to, to kind of fall back into their own way of life. And they hadn't been following the teaching and the commands of God. In fact, this is true across the board. When, whenever it feels like God is far away, God is not the one who has moved away from you. It's us who have moved away from God. If we're in a place where we feel cold, it's not the sun that has grown further in its distance. It's us who have turned away from the sun. God has not changed in His character or His qualities. He's still loving and gracious and slow to anger. And yet, there are times in our lives where it feels like God is far away. That's what the psalmist is experiencing. A time where he's wondering, why? Why isn't God here to help us and direct Us in this battle that we're about to face, will God rescue us in our time of distress? I think the text further on explains to the context of why this is taking place. As the next verses, verses 2 through 8, describe this 10-nation army surrounding Israel, ready to attack, as it says in verse 4, it says, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. This coalition of armies is made up of ten nations that had been part of Canaan and surrounding Canaan for many years. In fact, the first seven of these ten nations are all tied to four patriarchs of, of our faith. So you have Cain, who was the first son of Adam and Eve. You have uh, the Ishmaelites, Ishmael. You have Lot mentioned here. And you have Esau. All four of them, ironically enough, were people that their parents or their 
relatives considered to be adequate candidates to be the redeemer of mankind. And yet God overlooked them. And their children, their descendants, ended up becoming enemies of God. A constant thorn in the side of the people of Israel. When Israel was called and commissioned to come into the land, God told them that to to drive out all of the people, to purify and sanctify the land, this was the land that God had given to them. And they had some initial victories at the very start. They were doing really great when they got to the wall of Jericho. They had a little hiccup at Ai, but then they moved on and they had victory after victory. And even later on, they had great success in fighting with and for God. But after a while, they grew weary in fighting. The wars dragged on and the people said, I have land that I have to take care of. I can't be constantly sending my young men to war. And so tiredness and weariness won the day and they decided to cohabitate with the tribes already in Canaan. And what started off as a very seemingly peaceful experience ended up turning into a very dangerous threat. Why? Because the people of God had not continued in the plan that God had laid out for them. They had not done the work that God had called them to do. They had gone to an extent, they had, they had worked hard to a certain line in the sand, but eventually they gave up. And that is where they find themselves today. Sin had crept in. This cohabitation had led to, to a mixing of their religions and intermarriage, and all of a sudden the people had become lost in their relationship with God. They didn't trust Him. They didn't follow Him. They didn't listen to Him anymore. He was not leading them in battle, not because He was not their leader, but because they were not following Him. And that is what led them to the predicament. that They were surrounded now by ten nations. Two others of these nations were known as the Sea Peoples, the, the Philistia and the people of Tyre. These were known as the Sea People. It's part of the Bronze Period. It's the Dark Ages of the Bronze Period. We don't really know where they came from. Uh, we have a lot of extra-biblical sources, but uh, this has been a deep-rooted relationship with the people of Israel all the way from the very first chapter in the Bible. When it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord moved over the surface of the waters, There is an expression there in the context of the people of Israel that they've always feared the waters. The waters always brought uncertainty and always brought danger. These sea people had come in and ravaged the land and it brought a lot of fright, not just to the the Hebrew people, but to all of the people in that area. The other one that's mentioned here, the tenth of these, is known as Asher. Asher was the son uh, of Shem, one of the sons of uh, of Noah, And Asher eventually established the tribe of Assyria. And Assyria would be a nation that God would end up using as a means of punishing his people who had strayed from the path that they were meant to walk. There was a lot of history here, and that history is really important. It's a reminder that this issue that they were facing is very deep. This was not a surface issue. This is an issue that permeated the soil and something that they needed to do a great deal of work if they were going to be successful and live and thrive in the land. One of the things that I think is really important to understanding these uh, 10 armies that are surrounding Israel that I didn't point out in my sermon here on Psalm 83 is that how God answered this prayer. This is a prayer. It's an imprecatory prayer. The psalmist is asking for God to judge the enemies, and God ultimately answers no to this prayer. Ultimately, 
taking Assyria, using a pagan nation to bring judgment and justice on the people of God who had allowed their hearts to wander and stray. Now, we don't understand or know when this psalm was written, in what context, but we do know that ultimately they would be taken into captivity by the Syrians and the Babylonians, that this nation, Asher, that the psalmist is praying about, that God, he's praying that God would judge that nation, They'll ultimately get their judgment, but not in the way that the psalmist is asking. He's asking for protection of Israel, but ultimately, God has to punish Israel because of their neglect, their their waywardness, their heart that had gone to idols and idolatry and all of these other things. And he would use one of these ten nations to accomplish that punishment on them. It's actually a very stark warning that God would use a greater evil to punish an evil in us, but it is still an expression of God's love. God loves us so much that he will not allow us to get away with sin. He loves his children and he will punish them. He will chasten them because he loves them, like a heavenly father disciplining their children so that they learn to hate sin and love God. I hope that you understand this as we continue to unpack this imprecatory prayer. And if you have been blessed today, I hope that you'll return that blessing by sending us a note, a word of encouragement. When you write to Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, or you can look us up on social media. Don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue to unpack Psalm 83 as we discover that ultimately God is the one who is most offended when we sin. We don't really like to see the stories of God and his judgment and his justice on the world, but without these stories, we don't have much of a weight behind our faith. How can we be like him if we don't understand his fury towards sin? On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Psalm 85, 4 and 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation.